In ancient Israel, according to the government system that was ordained of God, there were three sectors of leadership. Uh, there was, and, I, and notice that I didn't say elected officials, but there was three sectors of leadership. And what those were is that, first of all, there were the kings. Of course, not at first, but once things were established under David, uh, there was the rule of the kings, the monarchs. And they were essentially the political heads of state. They were appointed by God, but they were also appointed by the people. There was a joint ratification of their uh, place. They had to fit the criteria and the call of God, but they also had to be put there by men because, of course, they were ruling over those people. And the role of the kings was really the administration over the life of the nation. They were uh, restricted somewhat in their, their legislation, but they were certainly in charge of the civil legislation. And they were in charge of the economic and military uh, responsibilities and campaigns. And the kings were a very critical component. They were by far the most politically powerful part of God's system in Old Testament times. But after the kings, the second group of people was the priests. And as the kings were the civil heads of state, or political, the the priests were the spiritual heads of state. And they were appointed by God according to the boundaries that God had established through the law. And so you would have, first of all, the high priest. And the high priest was always to be a direct descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. God had established it that way. And so unless you were a descendant and could prove it of Aaron, you could not be the high priest. But then other than Aaron, the high priest, there was a whole slew of priests. In fact, all of the descendants of the tribe of Levi, they were the priests in Israel. And so not the high priest having his authority, but they were in a sense the under priests. And and so their uh, role essentially in the whole thing, is that they were the legislators of the spiritual and the moral rule over the people. They were in charge of interpreting the word of God, the laws of God, and then seeing to it that the king and the rest of the nation was in compliance to what the will of God was for the nation. And so they were the legislators of the spiritual things. The priests also served in their role as mediators between God and the people. That is, in fact, the very definition of what a priest is. A priest is someone who stands before God on behalf of people and who stands before people in the behalf of God. And so that was an important role of the priests in their everyday function is that they were a representation of God to the people. The third um, operation of the priests is that they were in charge of the daily offerings and sacrifices that uh, were required under the law to be made. And so every morning and every evening in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple, there was an offering that was to be made. At various times throughout the years when there would be feasts or holy days, they were in charge of administering all of those rituals that were required of them. That was the course or the duty of the priests. That's what they would do in those things. Um, and also when the people would bring their offerings, if someone came to worship or if someone needed to offer, then it was the priest's responsibility to take that offering from the hand of the worshiper and then offer it according to the very specific instructions of how those things were to be offered uh, unto the Lord on behalf of the people. The fourth role of the priests is that they were uh, the teachers and the counselors and, and the prayers really for the people. And in this, they would be the modern equivalent to what we today uh, consider our pastors to be. You read in the Old Testament about times when there was a teaching priest. And that was something that was somewhat rare, but it was always treasured when there were teaching priests around. Because then they would be able to instruct the people in terms of the ways of God, interpret the word of God in a way that could be clearly understood so that the people would feel like they have a part, that they know what's going on. And so they would teach. They would also counsel. When people would come with issues or if they needed to seek God about something and felt like they needed someone to pray for them, they would come to the priest and the priest would intercede on their behalf. The high priest, as a part of his 
clothing, had an instrument called the Urim and the Thummim. We don't even know what that was. We know what it means. It was lights and perfections. But sometimes when there was something so complex that people needed an answer for, they could consult the high priest and he would somehow use the Urim and the Thummim to determine the will of God or the course that God wanted that person to take. And so the priests were there to give counsel to the people in the times that they needed and then, of course, also to pray for them and to care for them. A fifth role and function of the priests is that they were there to advise the kings and the rulers. And although they were lower in political authority than the kings, they were higher in the spiritual authority uh, than them because they were the ones that reported directly to God. They received their course from him, their instructions from him, and thus uh, uh, they were higher than than the, the kings in terms of their spiritual authority before the people. And that was the ministry of the priests, very much involved in the the daily life of Old Testament Israel in the lives of the people. The third branch of government, if you would, or leadership in ancient Israel was a group of people that were known as the prophets. And the prophets were men and women that were specifically gifted and called by God that had an ability, a gift, to see, to hear, and to know the invisible and supernatural things of God and to convey his messages and his deeds at various times according to God's purposes. Now, the prophets were different than the kings and the priests because they were exclusively chosen and appointed by God. There was no pedigree. There was no human choosing of it. They were not appointed or ordained by men. They were chosen by God and anyone, male or female, even if they weren't necessarily a Jew, And at times that happened. They could be called of God to be a prophet unto the nation or unto the nations if God so needed them at a given time in their life. They had, the prophets, no political authority at all. But yet they had the highest spiritual authority and that they were sent directly by God with his messages and with his word. And so that was the three arms. You had the kings, you had the priests, and you had the prophets. And God used each of those in their office in order to govern his people Israel. And it was an incredibly wise system. And the reason is because it had built into it a very natural system of checks and balances. If the people's heart was right with God. If the people were walking with God the way that they were supposed to be, then the system was absolutely flawless. And here's why. Because the allegiance of the people would naturally be with the priests and the prophets because they were the ones that represented God. And so they were treasured by the people. Their words, their their ministry, the things that they did, it was necessary for the success of the people. And so the people would have allegiance to the priests and the prophets. And therefore, the kings had to toe the line. They weren't able to get lifted up in their authority and in their power because if they did, the priests would stand against them and the people would side with the priests. And so the king would be brought back into the place where, oh yeah, that's right. I'm a king, but I'm also a servant. I serve the king of kings and therefore I cannot allow my power to corrupt me because I'll I'll lose my power. Now, when the people of God strayed from the heart of God, that's when things would turn sideways. Because now the people didn't care what the priests or the prophets said. They wanted to do whatever they wanted. And thus the king could do whatever he wanted, and he had nothing to bring him back into check or keep him in power. He could simply ignore the the voice of the priests and the prophets and do whatever he wanted because he had the authority to do it. And all of that was by design. Because once the king would become tyrannical then the judgment of God would be brought upon the nation, chastisement and difficulty would come, and the people would turn back to God. And once the people turned back to God, the king would have to come back into control, or he'd be thrown out. And so it was an incredibly wise system that God had ordained uh, throughout that time with that um, system. Now, as it concerns our study where we resume in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, and now it will go all the way through chapter 8, For a Jewish person under the Old Testament Mosaic system, the priesthood 
was a very important and critical component of their everyday lives. The presence of a priest in the lives of the people was critical because it was their access to God. They couldn't approach God without the mediation of a priest. They needed the priests in order to come to God at all. And thus the priest was the physical attachment to an invisible God in the lives of the people. Now, in the New Testament, all of that is gone. That doesn't exist any longer. Because in the New Testament, according to the terms of the New Covenant, there is no more priesthood. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is now one mediator or one priest between God and men, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And thus you and I, because we're linked to Christ through the cross and the blood, and we've been born again and his Holy Spirit now lives inside of us, no longer do we need to go to a man or to a priest in order to represent God to us or represent us to God. But because the veil in the temple was torn when Christ was crucified, we now have access to freely approach God all by ourselves. We don't need anyone else to do that. All of that priesthood business is over with because of Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of what the Old Testament priesthood represented. And thus, this part of Hebrews, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 4, starts the next section of the book of Hebrews for us. And that is that Jesus Christ is superior to the priests and the priesthood of Old Testament times. Now, as we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we've seen that the writer of Hebrews is setting forth and building a case that Jesus Christ alone is superior and sufficient and beyond anything else that, can, that, that was the Old Testament system. He's superior to the prophets, chapter 1. He's superior to angels, chapters 2 and 3. He's superior to Moses and Joshua, chapter 3, and into the beginning of chapter 4. He's superior to the rest that was provided under the Old Testament system in the Sabbath and in the Promised Land, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that rest, and the rest that he brings is a greater rest than that. And now he gets into the priesthood, that Jesus is a superior priest. Now you say, well, what does this study have to do with us tonight? I mean, I came out here because I want to hear from God. It has everything to do with us here tonight, and here's why. Because as it was in Old Testament times, the people would become attached to the person of the priest that represented them. He was, again, the representation of God before them. And so they would hang upon his every word. They would look at his life as an example and a pattern of what it meant to be a godly person. They respected their wisdom and the, the authority that they carried and the place that they held. And so that person became very much a part of that worshiper's life, that person that wanted to seek after the things of God. And they needed them in that sense. And, and what can happen, even in New Testament times, even though there's no longer a priesthood, we can fall into the error of looking to a man or looking to men, or looking to a person or a personality to be for us a representation of God. And that is not only unnecessary because of what we have in Jesus Christ, but it can also be dangerous because of the type of representation that might be, or it can be detrimental to our spiritual development or maturity or our discovering of what God's will and plan is for our lives individually. God doesn't want anyone or anything standing in between himself and his people. The reason why Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem, ransacked the temple twice. And the reason why Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, pronounced woe and damnation upon the Pharisees and the religious establishment of his day was because they had erected barriers that kept the people from approaching unto God in the way that he wanted his people close to him. And God still feels the same way today. When a man puts forth that you need him, or a woman, or any personality, that you need them in order to get close to God, that makes God angry. And any time a person 
puts a man or a personality or any other person between them and God, it grieves the heart of God because he sees the effect that it's going to have within their lives. And here's the point before we even look at the text is that it's not necessary at all. That because of Jesus Christ and the cross and the blood, we have access to God by ourselves. And that's the way God wants it. He wants us to come to him and he wants to deal directly with us in our lives. Him being our leader, him being our teacher, him being our source. Yes, there is a place and a calling for the pastor or for the spiritual leader or the mentor or the discipler or the evangelist. All of those things are necessary. But none of those things are to be a go-between in your relationship with God. It's to be directly before him. And God provides human help where it's needed. But he wants his people close. And so the message of chapter 414 all the way through 8.5 is that you no longer need a priest. You no longer need a human being to represent God for you or to represent you for God. And that's as true as it was in the day that the writer of Hebrews wrote to these Hebrew Christians as it is today in the Christian church where we have made a cult of personality and in our own mind we have erected men and women and leaders of ministries as idols that represent God on our behalf. Would that God would become so apparent in our lives that though these things can be helpful to us, we would in no wise lean upon or rely upon them to be our attachment to a holy God. And so he begins in verse 14 by presenting the case that Jesus is better and this is why Jesus is better and that you have no need to go to a human priest or a human pastor or personality to represent you before God. In verse 14, he says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. So again, the issue that the Hebrew Christians were facing is that they were turning back from their profession of Christ and going back into the Old Testament things, rituals and laws. And the first reason that he puts forth why Jesus is better or superior to the Old Testament priests is because his high priesthood is seated or enthroned in heaven and not on earth. Aaron, the brother of Moses, and his descendants had a legitimate priesthood. And it was an effective priesthood. It was ordained of God. He used it. But the best it could ever be was an earthly priesthood. And thus it was limited by the very nature of the fact that earth is limited. I mean, in earth, we have such a limited vision of what's really going on. We can't see into the spiritual realms. On earth, we have such frailty and weakness. We can only know so much and do so much and be so much. But in heaven, none of that is true. Heaven is the greater reality in the greater kingdom. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. One of the very first things that Jesus taught us to pray in our prayer is that we would pray that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Things always are initiated in heaven, and earth is the reflection of the reality or the judgment or the statute that's set in heaven. When the angel Gabriel visited um, the shepherds when Jesus was to come into the world, his message to them was, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And we, you know, we look at that as that's a slogan that belongs on a Christmas card. But in reality, that's the order of how the universe functions properly. That when glory is ascribed to God in the highest in heaven, the result of that will be peace and harmony on earth. Because heaven is the greater reality. And thus in that Jesus is the priest over the heavenly sanctuary, it sets his authority above any earthly priest because from heaven he can do all things, he can see all things, and he can be all things. And thus Jesus is greater than any human entity by sheer reason of the fact that he is in heaven and that nothing else on earth obviously is. And so Jesus is in heaven. Then he says in verse 15, concerning Jesus and why he's superior. He says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted 
like as we are, yet without sin. Another reason why Jesus is relatable, or I'm sorry, why Jesus is superior to all of the other priests is because Jesus is more relatable to you and I than any other priest ever could be. The Bible tells us here that Jesus was tempted in every point that it is possible for a human being to be tempted. Now, I want you to imagine that for a minute, what that means. I mean, just think about the vast spectrum of sins that can be committed or the vast spectrum of temptations that can be felt. None of us will ever know what that feels like to be tempted in all points. Now, all of us are tempted in some points, aren't we? We know what our temptations are. Every one of us has weaknesses and places where we know that if the right temptation comes at the wrong time and there's an opportunity, we're in big trouble because we know ourselves. At least I hope we're learning to know ourselves enough. But Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted in all things. And so sometimes someone will come to me and they'll ascribe a particular struggle that they're going through or something that they're fighting with and trying to get past. And there's times that I can really relate to what they're saying because it's something that I've faced. It's a temptation that I've struggled with and overcome. Maybe I'm able to help them even and say, hey, you know, I've been where you are. And this is how God brought me through that. And this is how victory came. Or this is just one of those ongoing things and we pray for one another. And I know what that is because I'm familiar with it. But then there's times that people come up to me and they bring something and I have no idea what they're talking about at all. I don't know what that feels like. When someone comes and says that they're struggling with a heroin addiction, I don't understand that. I, I know what it is. I intellectually and, and mentally understand it, but I've never gone through that. I was never addicted to something like that. So I can't relate to it. I don't know what it is. But somehow Jesus supernaturally knows what it's like to face the real temptation of every sin that can face a man. And yet, even though he was tempted in all points, we're told he did it without sin. Meaning that he overcame all of those temptations and thus he's able then to help us to overcome those temptations because he knows what it is to face them and he knows what it is to overcome them. Now, no human being can do that, but Jesus can. And therefore, he is a greater help and a greater priest than anything that this earth could ever give to us under the system of Aaron. He can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's relatable to us. Therefore, verse 16, because of these things, because Jesus is superior in these ways and he is sufficient, he says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain help and find grace to help in time of need. Now, if that verse isn't underlined in your Bible, I would suggest that you underline it, highlight it, memorize it, see where it is on the page and never forget the words that are spoken right there. Because what this affords us in terms of the, the ministry of Jesus as our great high priest is probably one of the most priceless things that a human being could possess ever in all of eternity. Notice what it is. First of all, there is an open invitation to come. He says, let us therefore come. Now, oftentimes, even in the Old Testament system, they would be reluctant to come. Well, I don't want to bother the priest. I mean, he's got so much to do. Or I couldn't possibly come to Aaron, the high priest, for this great need that I have right now. He's only one man. And he's over the entirety of the nation. And certainly he's way too busy and has way too much responsibility. I certainly can't come to him. But to Jesus, you and I can come at any time, never having to worry about whether he's too busy or if this is the right time or if I'm postured in the right way. He says, come. We have an open invitation to come to him. Matthew 11, chapter 20, uh, chapter 11, verse 28. Again, Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Holy Spirit bids us to come. Revelation chapter 22, he says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him that is a thirst, let him come. Let him that is naked and has no money, let him come and buy and dine. We are invited to come. Notice the approach with which we come. It says that he invites us to come boldly unto the throne of grace. Do you see that word boldly? Do you know what that means? It means that we can enter 
freely without reservation and without preconditions. Now think about how freeing that invitation is. Oftentimes, isn't it our nature and tendency to think, well, I can't go to God like this. I wouldn't go to a dinner party dressed in my jammies. So I certainly can't come into the courts of heaven in the spiritual condition that I'm in right now or the mental condition or with this fog or without having first rehearsed in my mind the words that I want to say. No, 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 no. All of those thoughts and things will cripple your coming to him. Because once you begin to place preconditions on your ability to come to him, you'll never find the boldness to come to him. Because it's never quite enough, is it? I mean, can a man ever really approach God and think that he is matching worth with his glory in some way that makes us worthy? Absolutely not. But God wants us in his presence all the time. He wants to hear our voices no matter what time of day it is, no matter where we are, no matter what posture we're seated in. He doesn't hear us more when it's in the morning on our knees than he does when we're sitting in our car tired and disheveled and soiled from the world. He hears us because of our priest, because of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we're invited to come boldly. I wish sometimes, actually, I, you know, I don't, I wish it for the, the purposes of this study. I never think about this. So I wish this, Father, but, you know, I wish that sometimes you could hear my prayers early in the morning. When I first wake up and, you know, step foot out of my bed and go outside the house and begin. It's the most incoherent, you know, no thoughts strung together, just words and fragmented things, but I do it. Do you know why? Because I know I need Him. And I know, and I believe that I have the invitation to come boldly into the throne of grace. And I'm not going to forsake that right or that privilege because I don't measure up as a man. I'm going to take God at his word and I'm going to come boldly. Now notice where we're coming to. We're coming, first of all, to the throne. He's the king, isn't he? The first thing Jesus taught us to pray when we come is our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, all of those things speak of his throne or his authority or his power to work within our lives when we come. That when we come to him, we can come knowing that he has the power and the authority to meet our needs and to address the things for which we're praying to him for. He can do those things because he's a majesty. And notice also that it's the throne of grace. It's not the throne of law. It's not the throne of justice. It's not the throne of righteousness. It's not the bench that you're approaching unto as a lawyer or a counselor that you have to argue with God in order to get... You're coming to the throne of grace. Grace means getting what you don't deserve. It means that I'm asking God for things or presenting Him with things that I absolutely have no right at all or plea before Him to obtain but I'm coming to him not on the basis of my works or my righteousness or what I can earn, but I'm coming to him on the basis of his gift of grace and what he provides. It's the throne of grace. And that emboldens me to come because I know it's nothing of myself, that it's all completely of him and what he has done for me. And so it's a throne of grace so that I might obtain mercy. And you know what mercy is? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. What do we all deserve? Hell, wrath, judgment, justice, discipline, chastisement, all of those things. That's what we deserve. If God were to say, all right, well, I want to do these things for you, but we need to settle up first. I'd be like, uh, this was a bad idea. I'll make it on my own today, <laughs> you know, because I don't want, I can't, justice, I'm done. I'm done one minute after I wake up and get out of bed. I'm done before that. I'm done from last night's stuff that I still haven't gotten right. My account is gone. But before him, I obtain grace and I obtain mercy because of my high priest. Even in the old covenant, when there was the ark of the testimony, and that was in the most holy place, only the high priest could approach the holy of holies. And the ark of the covenant was in there, the golden box that was overshadowed by the the angels, And the lid of that box was called the mercy seat. And it's a picture of the throne of God, the ark being his presence, the mercy seat being his throne. And when the high priest would go in there on the day of atonement, which, by the way, 
is this very day today that, that the Jews are commemorating and that many of us, well, many of you, got, I'm working right now, right? You know, but some got off of school or off of work because of, uh, of the holiday that is. But on that one day of the year, the high priest could go in and he would sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat. And the blood was a picture of the blood of Christ. And the mercy seat was a picture, a lid that covered the law that the law was under the blood. It was put away so that the worshiper could freely come. And when Jesus died on the cross and the lamb was slain and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifice was completed in him, the Bible tells us that the veil that separated everyone else from the holy presence of God was torn from top to bottom, from heaven to earth, thus giving access to the people of God to be able to approach him boldly. No longer is there a separation because of Christ. And therefore, when I come boldly, no matter what condition I'm in, I don't come expecting judgment, but I come expecting grace and mercy because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I meet God at the mercy seat. And that's what God said would happen. And so Jesus is a superior priest to Aaron or to any man because he can do what Aaron could never do and he can do what no man ever can or will be able to do. No human being is ever going to be able to really truly solve the problems of another human being. But God absolutely can. And that he's upon a throne and that he is sovereign over all. What amazes me is how reluctant we often are to bring our problems to God. Isn't it human nature that we'll go to God very lastly? We'll consult Google, we'll consult people, counselors, pastors, friends. We'll bear our burdens in so many places. And then we come to the end of our wits and we say, God, I guess I'll bring it to you. It's not the last place we should bring, it's the first place we should bring our cares. Peter said, cast our cares upon him because he cares for you. Can I ask you this tonight? What did you carry in here? Every one of us carries something with us. They change from season to season, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, sometimes big, sometimes small. But the thing that you're carrying right now, that when you leave here, it's going to meet you in the car when you go out and it's going to, going to say, think about me again and give attention and find your help from this. Can I ask you tonight, have you brought that to the one who is able to address those things and to do what no one else can? The Bible says that nothing shall be impossible with God that he can do all things. And at the very least, if you bring your things to him, he may not fix them and make them all go away right away, but he will set your heart at ease that he is using those things to perform his will and purpose and intent within your life. And when it is time that those things can be passed away or carried off, they will be by him because he's able to. But what a peace there is in bringing it to him and not trusting in ourselves. As we move into chapter 5, he's going to bring a comparison and a contrast between Aaron and Jesus. And he's going to bring validity to the priesthood of Christ. And here's why that's important. Because for a Jew that was tempted or would be tempted to go back to this system, to hear the words Jesus and high priest put together would grate against their conscience or against their knowledge. Because Jesus technically wouldn't be qualified under the old covenant system to be the high priest. He was from the tribe of Judah. The priests were from the tribe of Levi and the descendants of Aaron. And Jesus was not those things in the flesh. And so for a Jew to hear Jesus and high priest put together, it would cause the check engine light to go on in their mind. And they would say, well, that's a foul. That doesn't really work. Jesus can't be our high priest. And so what the writer is going to do now is he's going to explain why Jesus is qualified to be the high priest and why he's a different type of priest than Aaron was. So he begins by talking about the priests that were the Levites, the Aaron descendants. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, For every high priest taken from among men, that is the Old Testament priests, the human priests, is ordained or appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the first 
element that made someone qualified to be a priest under the Aaronic system is that he was ordained of God. He met the qualifications. He had the ability and the skills to do the job. And thus he was able to do it. He was appointed. He was a priest offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. So he was qualified. Then in verse 2, it says also, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity or surrounded with his own or aware of his own weakness. And thus the priests had to be human. God didn't appoint angels to be priests because he wanted the priests to be able to sympathize and have compassion on the people. He wanted them to be compassionate. Now, if a priest was perfect, then he would look at a worshiper who was flawed and he would have disdain and disgust in his heart. You think you come in here, you think you can approach God in the condition that you're in? A sorry sinner like you coming to a holy God and you think that I'm going to help you? But God wanted human instruments that would be aware of their own weakness because it would cause them to have compassion upon those that they were ministering unto. When they would come and they'd say, I'm really struggling with this particular temptation. The priest wouldn't be able to look down on themselves righteously because he would say, man, you know, I struggle with that too. You know, And it would cause a humility and an approachability. And so God wanted his priests to be approachable. So qualified, approachable, then verse 3 And it says, and by reason hereof, because he's weak, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. He's able to perform the work of the ministry in purifying the conscience of the worshiper. And then finally, number four, he's called. And that no man takes this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. Now, this is where the hang up would happen. Wait, Jesus was not called in the same way that Aaron was. So although Jesus meets the criteria in every other way, he was qualified, he had compassion, he offered for the sins of the people and could cleanse their conscience, he was not a descendant of Aaron. So what gives? How can he be the high priest? Now he switches from Aaron to Christ in verse 5. He says, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him that he is God, of course, thou art my son, today I have begotten you, being that God is the one that placed him in the world, giving him the humanity necessary for compassion. But God also said, it says in verse six, he said also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now he's quoting from Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. Just a single verse in an obscure psalm about this man, Melchizedek, and how God, by the Spirit, pronounces upon his son that he has ordained a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Meaning this, is that Jesus is a high priest indeed, but he is a high priest over a different order than Aaron was over. Now that automatically stands to reason for any New Testament believer because the old covenant was a different covenant than the new covenant. Aaron was the priest of the old. Jesus is the priest over the new. And so Jesus is a high priest, not after the system of Aaron, but rather after the system of this man, Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, and I don't even know if I'm saying that right, you know, but I'm speaking, so I get to say it however I want, right? <laughs> Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in all of the Old Testament scriptures. He's mentioned in Genesis chapter 14, and then again in Psalm 110, verse 4, the verse that we just read quoted here in Hebrews. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham is returning from the slaughter of the kings. He rescued his nephew Lot. He's carrying away the spoils. And as he's on his way, it says that the king of Salem, this man Melchizedek, who is also the priest of the Most High God, came out to meet Abraham as he was returning. And he blessed Abraham there, and Abraham gave him, Melchizedek, tithes, or one-tenth of all the spoils that he had taken there in the battle. And then he was blessed of Melchizedek, and then Melchizedek leaves the scene and never appears again. 
We have no idea where he came from, who he was, no human identity or, or reference to him at all. He comes, meets with Abraham, blesses him, receives tithes, and he's gone, never to be heard of again. Until he's mentioned in Psalm 110, where God says by the Spirit that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You say, whoa, that's heavy. You know, where in the world, how do we tie this together? The writer of Hebrews is thinking that same thing. Hang with me. He speaks again of Jesus, this priest after the order of Melchizedek in verse 7. He says, who in the days of his flesh, that is speaking of the humanity of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, speaking, of course, of when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, just before going to the cross. He prayed unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. So he says that Jesus prayed, and he gives us something about Jesus' prayer that wasn't necessarily given to us in the gospel account, is that he prayed with strong cryings and with tears, and that he was afraid, that there was a fearfulness and a reverence. Another thing that we're told here is that he was heard. Do you know that there's no reference to the fact that Jesus was heard when you read the gospel account? When you read the gospel account, it almost appears as though he wasn't heard, right? I mean, Jesus prays the same thing three times. Father, if, it, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He prays that three times, and there's essentially no answer. God never says, hang in there, son. Doesn't do it. There's no answer to it at all. But yet it tells us that he was heard nevertheless. Understand this. That when you as a Christian, because you're in Christ and because you've been uh, placed under the blood and your sins have been washed away, when you pray to our God in the fear of God, he hears that prayer. And the Bible tells us in 1 John that if he hears us, it's in chapter 5, then we know that we have the things that we've asked for. He hears us, but he has the right of refusal and he also has the right of time within our lives. He is the Lord, right? And so if we ask for something that is not his will, he has the right to answer us with a no. That's an answer, isn't it? And he has the right to answer us with silence, which is a wait. But he has not ignored us and he will not ignore us in spite of the fact that sometimes it seems that our prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and returning right back into the heart that they sprang forth from. It tells us in verse 8 concerning the ministry of Christ, it says that though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, if you read that wrong, you can almost interpret that to say that Jesus was a disobedient son, and that he needed to learn obedience, and thus he learned that obedience through the sufferings that his disobedience brought into his life. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying to us, because we already know, we were just told that he was tempted, but without sin. He never sinned at all. And so the obedience and the suffering that he's re referencing here, the suffering is the suffering that you feel when you're being tempted. It's suffering to be tempted, isn't it? I mean, we know what it's like when we're facing temptation and we want to resist it. There's a suffering that happens in it. But Jesus wasn't taught by giving into that temptation, but rather it was by overcoming that temptation that Jesus was victorious. And so it isn't necessary that we learn from failure. We can learn from standing up against and resisting. He learned obedience the, the, the benefit of obedience by the things which he suffered, his overcoming. And then it says, being made perfect. And of course, that's not implying that Jesus wasn't perfect and that he needed to be made perfect, but rather he's speaking of the salvation that Jesus provided. He was perfected, not as the Son of God, but he was perfected as Savior. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So the perfection is not of his character or of a flawed heart, but rather it's the perfection of the salvation. And that was purchased through the passion and the cross.
When Jesus endured the temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then when he endured the cross according to the will of God, the salvation that was sufficient to save you and I was perfected in that time. And now he is qualified to be called Savior unto all them that obey him. That word obey, do you know what it means in the original language? It means to give heed to one who knocks. Interesting, isn't it? Because the Bible says that Jesus stands at the door of our heart and he knocks. And he bids us to open to him that if we would open that he'll come in and he'll be in our lives, that we'll dine with him. And so to those that open the door as he knocks and invites them into this salvation, he makes them to be saved. Now that right there sets Jesus apart from any priest of the Old Testament system. Not one of them, not even Aaron himself, could be qualified as the savior for the people. Once a year, Aaron could go into the Holy of Holies. And for one day, he could pronounce forgiveness upon the people. But five minutes after that announcement was made, the people needed to be cleansed again. And there would be a new priest and a new day of atonement year after year after year because nothing could save eternally under the old covenant system. But Jesus, it says, he is the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Thus he is called by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I love what happens in verse 11. Because what the Hebrew writer does now is he disengages himself from his train of thought and he breaks script for a moment. And he's going to talk to these people separate. So he's been the teacher. He's been wearing this teacher hat all along, going through and explaining these things. And now he's going to take it off and he's going to put on the pastor hat and he's going to talk directly to his audience. Let him talk to you if he has to. Here's what he's going to say. Verse 11. He says, Of whom, concerning this Melchizedek, we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing that you are dull of hearing. In other words, here's what he does. He's pacing back and forth. He's going like this. And he's thinking these things through. And he's thinking about Melchizedek. And how in the world am I going to explain Melchizedek and his ministry and what it represents to these people that are so far gone that they're turning back to the old covenant system? And he goes, I can't. They won't even get it. It's so far beyond where they're at that I I want to explain it to them, but they're not going to get it because they're dull of hearing at this point in their spiritual maturity. Now, he's going to do it anyways because that's what us pastors do. We realize, you know, this is way too complex and technical, but we do it anyway, you know, and thankfully he does it anyway. But notice what he says to those that are dull of hearing. He says this in verse 12. He says, for when for the time, and that is the amount of time that you have been walking with Jesus Christ, when for the time you ought to be teachers, but you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles, the very foundational things of the oracles or the truths or the word of God. And you are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. In other words, what he's saying is that you guys, not you, but them, you know, he's saying you guys at this point have been walking with the Lord long enough that you should be teachers of these things. But that's not the case. Instead, you're just spiritual infants. And you have need to just be given milk again. Do you know what milk is? Milk is pre-digested food. Do you know that no matter what I give you here tonight in this Bible study, I'm giving you milk? Do you know why? Because I've digested this. I've been chewing on this and digesting this and breaking it down all week. And now I'm giving you what's already passed through me and you're getting the byproducts of what I've eaten and digested. Doesn't that make you feel good about being in church here tonight? You know. But he calls that spiritual milk. The Bible also likens the word of God to bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in a minute, he's going to refer to it as meat. That there are things in the word that are more technical, that need to be chewed on, that need to be cooked a certain way. 
that are harder to digest, but that also have benefits when we take them in. And what he's saying is that this group of Christians was so suspended in their infancy that they were at a place where they needed milk and that they weren't able to endure the meat of the word of God, the strong meat that helps us to really understand the things that God wants us to understand in our walk with him. When you walk into a nursery and you see a six-month-old baby laying in his crib and he's got a diaper and, or she and they're, they're you know, sucking on their bottle and the whole thing. And, you know, and the whole, you, you look at them and you just are, are overwhelmed with the awe and the preciousness and, and the purity of that new life. And, and there's just a wonder in it. And babies just bring joy, unless it's the wee hours of the night and they're yours. You know, then you might feel a little different, you know. <laughs> but, 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 but you don't feel that bad because that's where they're supposed to be. They're babies. And so they act like babies and we expect babies to act like babies. But if you were to go into that same nursery and you were to walk over to the crib and you were to see in that crib and there's a bottle and there's a diaper and there's, you know, a thumb being sucked, but there's a full head of hair and a beard (laughs) and a 25-year-old male who's sitting there wearing nothing more than a diaper and is, is not grown beyond that place of infancy 25 years into their human life, you would look at that and you would say, that is one of the saddest things that I have ever seen. Because there's a suspended infancy. They've failed to develop beyond the place where once was, was acceptable, but they've chosen to stay there And thus they've missed out on all the life and all of the development that was supposed to happen during those 25 years and they've missed out on all of it. And when heaven looks at a Christian and sees a new Christian and they're a baby Christian and they're acting like a baby Christian, heaven rejoices that there are baby Christians. More than one sinner that needs no repentance. A person that needs no repentance. But when heaven sees a person that should be way far beyond where they are, And yet there's a suspended infancy. Heaven grieves over that. And here the writer of Hebrews calls out these people and he says, you guys are not where you should be at this state in your walk with Christ. You have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. There are baby Christians that should no longer be baby Christians. They cannot process and handle anything beyond the very fundamental, simple elements of Christian truth or Bible doctrine. But now he describes what meat is in verse 14. He says, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age. That is, they're mature. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Here's what that means. It means that you take the word of God in on a steady and regular basis. You allow it to challenge you. You go the extra mile to understand the things that are difficult for you to understand. And then you begin to apply those things in your life. And you see how they work and what they mean in the real world and in your real relationship with God and with people. And you say, oh, I had a misunderstanding about what that scripture meant because that doesn't flesh out in real life. And now I get it. I understand. I shared with you a week ago, last week, about that Bible study that I heard about praying through the tabernacle. And when I first heard that, I thought, man, that's awesome. That's going to bless my prayer life. But after exercising what I learned, I found, you know what? I need to go back and reassess. That's not what that means. That doesn't work that way. That's having the opposite effect of what I thought it would have within my life. That's using the word, having my senses exercised, being able then to discern both good and evil. I was teaching my kids last night. We're going through Judges right now, and we're in the part where Samson and Delilah have their interactions, you know. And we looked at the whole story of how Delilah wanted money and how Samson wanted sex. And so she wants money, he wants sex, the Philistines want Samson dead. Because, you know, so everybody's got their thing that they want in this. And then we're able to look at the story about how everyone used their angle or their hook or their deception in order to get what they wanted in the circumstance. And God and Samson were the ones that got burned. And, well, they all got burned and buried, really, at the end of the story. You know, the whole thing didn't work out. 
But as I was talking to the kids, I said, listen, understand. This is not some simple Bible story that was put here so that you could say Samson was strong and stupid and then he, you know, whatever. This whole thing. No, 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 no. God wants you to see this. Do you see what she wanted? She wanted money. Do you see what he wanted? He wanted this. Do you see what they wanted? I said, please, kids, understand people. God put this here so that you would understand. So that when someone comes up to you, Rocky, a Delilah, and says, oh, I love you so much, Rocky. You are so amazingly wonderful. I said, think about it for a minute. Exercise your senses. Discern good and evil. Understand human nature. God gave us all of this in his word so that we could walk in wisdom and we could prosper in our lives. And when I say prosper, I'm not talking about TV. I think you understand. So that we'd be protected. But we don't do it. We say, oh, the word. It's so boring. They have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We're done, but notice in verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on, let us go forward, let us progress unto perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. That's salvation. Or the doctrine of baptisms or the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. He says all of these things are the basic fundamentals of what makes a Christian a Christian. And Paul says, I'm sorry, the writer of Hebrews says, leave those things for a little while. They, they are what they are. And let's move on. Let's go further. And this we will do if God permits. What he's saying is, I want to talk to you guys about things that are technical so that you can understand things about God that you never understood or comprehended before. But you have got to grow up and be stretched out in the word of God in order to do it. The musicians can come as we close. But at the beginning of our study tonight, I I, I said to you that the reason why the priesthood was so dangerous. And why even in the New Testament, when we place a man or a personality or a person in that place of our go-between, between between us and God, why that is so bad? It's bad for three reasons. It's bad because, first of all, no human being is actually able to perform what it is that we need within our lives. And so we're not going to get what we're hoping for. Furthermore, that human being is flawed, I'm flawed. I'm a flawed person. I have struggles. I have. I, I, I blew it yesterday so bad that it would make your head spin. I didn't sin. It wasn't like a sin thing. But just the flaws that we have are so deep, you know. And for us to place our trust in a human being and think that they're going to be our representation before God, it's a recipe for disillusionment and discouragement. Don't do it. Put your faith in Christ alone. He alone is able. It is good. Now, here's why it's detrimental. Because when we do that, we place ourselves in a course, in a trajectory, to be spiritual infants even 25 years into our Christian walk. Until we get past the man thing and we get into the God thing, until we get past the milk of the word and begin ourselves to take in the meat of the word and see where the rubber meets the road and we become Christians in every sense of the word, we will remain infant in our Christian life and we will miss out on all that God has and all that God wants for us. The challenge is this. Is Christ the Lord of your life alone? Is Christ the great high priest in you and in me? to the place where we have learned to bear things upon him and not upon anything else. Where we've learned to take our issues and our needs to the word of God and to the spirit of God and the person of God in prayer and allow him to see us through without the help of another human entity. That's the place that he wants within our lives. He is the superior priest. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Do you know him? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would take these things that we've learned tonight as technical as they are. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make them real in our relationship with you. We desire that you would be the Lord of all things to us. 
that we would know you better than we know any human being, that we would have an acute sensitivity to hear your voice, that our senses would be sharpened, that we might discern what's good and right and what's wrong and bad. We pray that you would give us the ability, Lord, to see the eye of our shepherd, that we wouldn't need to be led around with a bit and with a bridle, that we wouldn't learn through chastisement and mistakes, but that we would come to a place of maturity, that you are our king and our shepherd. And I pray, dear Lord, for every person here, that there would be a boldness and a constancy in our approaching unto you, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in our times of need. So Jesus, show us tonight how much you love us. Show us all that you've given to us. And let us not just say, but let us be the sons and daughters of the living God. And we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.